welcome to the People's Poetry Podcast with me, Jimmy Bowman. Hello and welcome to episode one of People's Poetry Podcast. My name is Jimmy Bowman and it's my absolute pleasure to have you here along with me. Why poetry? Well, as an aspiring poet myself, I wanted to find out just what it was about poetry that made it still so very special, even in the instantly disposable Tinder generation of today. I'll be travelling the UK to talk to established poets, as well as those taking their first steps into the world of poetry to talk about their work, experiences, and to attempt to answer why poetry. This is a podcast aimed at you at home. Whether you're an avid fan of poetry or perhaps someone who's never really had an interest in it before, poetry is for everyone. We all write poems every day. Our lives lend a poetic hand. Poetry isn't elitist and exclusive. It's inclusive. This is poetry for the people and you're all invited. This episode's featured poet is none other than Mr Tony Walsh a.k.a. Longfellow. Many of you will recognise him from his works on the BBC, but most notably his recital of his poem This Is The Place at the Manchester Peace Virgil following the tragic terrorist attack almost two years ago. I caught up with Tony at his London day in Farringdon at The Slaughtered Lamb. We spoke about his book Sex and Love and Rock and Roll. We spoke about the Manchester Virgil. We spoke about the idea of the ordinary being celebrated within poetry. And we chowed down on that question. Why poetry? What makes it so special? Why do we as a nation turn to poetry? In front of me, I've got the brilliant Tony Walsh. Thank you very much for joining us, Tony. I am glad to be here. London, quite a big city. How many times have you played it? Uh, I don't know. I've been, I've been coming to London uh, since I was about 20, really, but I've, I've played, I don't know, uh, six or eight times, maybe. Last time I was here was uh, Abbey Road, but that's top secret for now. <laughs> very interesting. Uh, I just wanted to talk about sort of generic poetry in general at first I mean poetry is quite a niche area of literature what is it what was your calling if you like to make you start writing poetry I've I've written all my life I've I've written since I was six and they must have been down to a a primary school teacher and I um, I brought my poems home and uh, to my my grandma's and my my nana as I call her would would rewrite them into uh, into a writing pad and, and I she she wrote them when I was six and seven and then when I was eight nine ten I uh I wrote them in myself, and then when I was older, I kept writing. I didn't. I didn't show anybody, and um, I don't know. It's it's uh, it's a great way to express yourself. It's something that that I've all that I've always done. You know, reading your work, it's it's quite evident you're a massive music fan as yeah, well. Absolutely. Is is that something you felt that went hand in hand? Who I suppose who yeah. inspired you musically as well? well? Lots of poems. Are, lots of poets are failed rock stars. <laughs> I've, I've categorised myself there, and as I say in the in the foreword to my book. Um, um, the, my, the first poets I was exposed to were, were, were lyricists, you know. Um, so I caught the tail end of the, of the punk thing. So you know, your Paul Wellers and, and Joe Strummers and people. But um, and um, you know, I grew up in, a, in an Irish household, exposed to, to Irish music as well. And that storytelling tradition. Um, when, I, when I wrote, I was never quite clear whether they were poems or song lyrics or, or what. You know, when I was a kid. They've got quite a riff, rhythmical yeah, sort of... I, I, very much a, a rhythm and a metre of flow to, to my stuff. Um, but yeah, I was, I was inspired by music, first of all, and then those poets who, in the late 70s, um, spanned that gap. So John Cooper Clark worked with musicians and Linda Quasi Johnson on a sort of a dub reggae sort of uh, vibe. And um, yeah, and, and that, that drew me across to, to what poetry could be. 
I suppose you're quite quite spoiled in Manchester for sort of creative minds. Yeah, it's it's an amazing place, and because you know London London's one of the world's great cities, not getting away from it, but it's huge, and the, and the centre of Manchester is is a square mile, mm. you know. So ev- everything that you can think of that's happening in Manchester has happened in in that square mile, and um, so it's very much a village, very much a family, the creative yeah. scene, and it's been an absolute thrill for me to to join that scene in the last couple of years, particularly, you know. Why is it you think we, as a nation or just as humans, turn to poetry in sort of times of need? Uh, well, I'd question whether whether we do as a nation, really. As you travel around, as you talk to poets from other places, poetry's got a different standing, a different cultural weight in different cultures. And, and it's quite a long way from the, from the mainstream in, the, in, this, in this country, I think. But it is something that we, that we turn to for, for, for big national occasions, uh, big moments in our history and, you know... You know, I, I, I bear testament to that with what happened to me with the, with the poem after the Manchester bomb. Yeah, I was just going to talk... You know, it, it's ancient. You know, every now and again, poetry has a moment that people talk about, you know, poetry boom, po- new rock and roll, what have you. But we've only written... Most normal people's families have only, have only written for, you know, a few generations. But we've, we've always done this. It's, it's, it's in us. I, t- I saw you said it's ancient and in us before. Yeah, so. It is. We've, we've done this for thousands of years around campfires. So when I, when I teach what I do, when I work in schools and prisons and so on, you can teach this to people who can't read and write who, or who aren't engaged at school. And it's, it's an ancient oral tradition more, more, than a, more than a written tradition. So when, when we strip away all the artifice of music and uh, whatever else, uh, screens, you know, and when we just have human talking to human, we respond to it very deeply, I think. I can't not mention the Manchester poem. So yeah. the poem you read at the, the Virgil, This Is The Place... I mean, was watching it, the people went from sort of tears to laughter. That must have been an odd yeah, thing yeah, to yeah. behold. Let's, let's rewind there. So um, the, the poem was written a few years before uh, the terrible events of May the 22nd, 2017. So it was a poem ab- about Manchester. And the version I performed in the square had about 16, 18 lines removed because it was commissioned by a charity called Forever Manchester. And the brief was, summon up the spirit of Manchester, why people get misty-eyed about the place, and then point it our way as a charity. So the lines that I omitted do that. So the charity's called Forever Manchester. When I say at the end of the poem, I always remember, never forget Forever Manchester. That's working, it's working overtime, it's working on two levels, you know. So the poem stands alone, to a point, without it. Um, yeah, I, I, I was invited down on the day. I got there at sort of five o'clock and there was nobody in the square. An hour later, there was maybe 15,000 people. And um, what I hadn't grasped was the fact that it was, be- it was beamed live around the world and, and trended worldwide on social media. And yeah, the, the poem wasn't written for the bomb, so as such, there's, you know, there's moments of humour in there. And uh, there was a, a slight worry as to whether that struck the, the right tone on, on, on the day. Uh, and then there was a practical um, demand on my stagecraft in terms of flurries of applause coming up and the little chant starting over there and um, so when you see me with my finger in the air that's me sort of directing the crowd to hang on a minute while I, you know while I finish the line you know and um, it, it was uh, it was a very emotional day and, and the start of a hugely emotional couple of years for me you know say a lot about poetry though as an art the fact that you wrote that before and it, it was so fitting for that that moment yeah, in time well, you know it's 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 entered the folklore in Manchester now people are having it the full thing 61 lines tattooed down this down the side of them it's been projected onto buildings and carved onto bricks and graffiti art and it, interpreted as a dance track and classical music and all sorts of projected onto buildings oh, the fabric now yeah, then it really is 
And, uh, you know, as an artist, it, whatever discipline you're in, it's about connection. And to connect that deeply in that moment and then, you know, culturally uh, across the, the months that have passed since is, is always going to be a privilege, you know. I want to talk about uh, your debut collection, Sex and Love and Rock and Roll. I mean, for me, it celebrates the ordinary, which I absolutely love. But the quote that you've got uh, at the start by Adrian Mitchell, most people ignore most poetry because most poetry ignores most people. Can you talk to me about that? I mean, I, I think it's a great message. Why did you choose to open your debut with that? Well, the, the, the second thing in the book is, is a quote from Elvis Presley who said, uh, I don't know much about music in my line of work. You don't have to. You know, and, it, and, and the whole sort of intro manifesto at the front of the book there talks about, you know, how I came to poetry, not from, a, not from an academic place, but from, a, from, from music and, and from a folk, you know, a folk tradition in the broad meaning of that word. And, you know, what happened with poetry? When you, you know, it used to be a, peop used to be a people's art form. Pe you know, people used to engage with it. Poets would, would be a big draw. Working class poets would stand on, on street corners delivering what we call broadsides, which is where we get that phrase, you know, bawdy, yeah. bawdy material, political, satirical material, sold for a penny, you know. And then, in, you know, in the early part of the 20th century, what happened in, in say, art, we, you know, we talk about modern art, we're talking about the time of World War One in, in, in many ways, you know. And and artists across all art forms said, you know, the, the man isn't going to tell me how what I can do anymore. So artists started... Uh, you know, conceptual art and, and so on, got moving away from painting, you know, nudes and uh, and uh, country scenes and what have you. And the same thing happened with poetry. And poetry, uh, the poets stopped rhyming and started uh, uh, writing free verse and claiming the right to be a freer form in their writing, because rhyming is hard. You, you're trying to rhyme and say something and keep a flow up. And, and there's a quote, I forget who said it now, that I, you know, I want to be about birds, not bird cages, you know. My, my, my words are going to run free, man, you know. Yeah. So, you know, I'm really up for modern art and all sorts of weird things in, in, in all sorts of art forms. But for, for most people, what happened then was poetry lost its relationship to music. It lost its rhythm. And, and it parted company with, with, with large parts of the public at that yeah. point, I think. So, but but it's so you know people to say they don't like poetry. It's like saying you don't like a type of music. So I think I in most people's minds, poetry is either the equivalent of classical music, you know, your Shakespeare's and yeah. your Chaucer's, and you think that's not for me, and it's not for me either. Yeah. Or it's not just jazz. It's the weird end of jazz where you can't hear a tune in it, you know. And lots of people, you know, put up barriers to that. I think that there's a poem in your collection, Sonnet Boom, yeah. which you sort of. The opening lines are, they told me I should use a classic form to prove that I'm the master of my craft. Yeah, so it, that is a traditional Shakespearean sonnet in, in, in uh, you know, 14 lines, uh, ten, 10 beats to a line. And, and it's a sonnet about sonnets, uh, being satirical about what sonnet can do. The last poem in the book is also a sonnet. It's about the punk band, The Clash. And I, uh, I got to perform it here in London, actually, at Maidervale Studios a few years ago when The Clash uh, released their box set. They did a six-music uh, interview. I was there. I was asked to perform it. And, um, you know, the word, the word, you know, it might seem a, an anomaly, an incongruous thing to, to do a sonnet about a punk band, but a sonnet is a short, short sharp form, and the punks wrote short, short yeah. sharp songs. Uh, sonnet means... Um, Song, uh, song in little song in, in Italian, and um, so it's a sonnet made up of, of of clash lyrics and clash references. Really, there's a 
just two poems I just wanted to ask you about up reading. Yeah, no, I've I've had your book for some time actually. Um, and one poem that really jumped out at me was uh, "No Mark," because it is gritty. It's it's hard hitting, but I found it almost inspiring in a way to you know to sort of try and get you to break free and leave your own mark but a positive mark because the mark you talk about in that poem it's not a happy mark at the end it's it's a poem uh, i wrote a number of years ago and it's not one that i perform regularly so it's, it's not it's not to the front of my mind but uh, in liverpool uh, you'd call somebody a nomad or you're a nomad meaning meaning you're a nothing right. you know that you, you live and die and you've never never left a mark on the world it's a terrible thing to, to say really and and as i recall it, it talks about how uh, a, w- a woman struggled in life and ended up dead with a with a chalk line yeah. around her. And, and you write the poem. The, po- the poem talks about questioning what 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 mark we can leave in life, and and how we judge people who are struggling to leave a mark. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's, it is. It's, it's really pleasing when people pick up on on not the main poems. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, the other one I was going to talk about was a tiny dreams. I don't know if that's one you do, but I, I just it's the way you juxtapose the sort of grey reality, and then you've got that magic of the library and. Yeah, that's that's a poem about uh, a, a working class woman who who writes and has got plenty to write about, mm. but lacks confidence and 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 keeps it in a drawer, and it, and it talks about how you know he goes to, you know she goes to a library and she doesn't find any books there that reflect her experience and you know what, when I was growing up you know you read Enid Blyton and Just William or what have you yeah. it's all public schools you know, yeah. and so you know when Grange Hill came in being a you know a comprehensive school inner city comprehensive school in, in the late seventies that w- that was groundbreaking yeah. you know because everything else was like public school before then. So that's 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 a poem about not just the the validity but the importance of, of working class people's stories, mm. and that's something uh, that is is coming to the fore in, in debate again now. So you've, you've you know you've got the whole thing of your of your Benedict Cumberbatches and who have you these people who, who went to Eton and went to went to private schools d- dominating the acting profession. Similar things happening in um, in the publishing world. Uh, I'm in an anthology soon la- launching here on the South Bank on May the first. Um, uh, curated, uh, organised by a, an excellent author, a woman called Kit Dewal, W A L, and it's a, a an anthology of working class writers. So she's uh, um, found 15, 18 people from a from a working class background uh, to to write essays and, and poems and, and stories, and then invited a similar number of emerging writers from from the regions of the UK interspersed them. So you got people like uh, Mallory B- Blackman, who was the children's um, yeah. poet laureate. You've got uh, people like broadcasters like Stuart McConey in there, uh, Dalgit Nagra, all sorts of prestigious literary names interspersed with um, uh, working class emerging writers. I'll, def- I'll definitely check that out. A tiny dream. Yeah. Like I think part of my background, obviously, is coming from a working class family, is what made me think that was great. Can we talk quickly about your poetry and how it sort of transcends onto the stage because performing poetry must be quite a daunting process is it something you still find a little bit daunting or it is i do get a little bit angsty before i go on stage not not cripplingly nervous but i'm a little bit edgy all day i'm I'm on in an hour and i've started to get a bit edgy here but um you know that's that's the joyful part really i get more stressed by the admin and, and and all that sort of stuff but um you know to some extent i call myself a performance poet but there's a there's a there's a discussion amongst 
people in, in my sort of position about why, why, why do we have to be a something poet? Why can't we just be poets yeah. like, like everybody else? Why can't, pay, you know, why can't we talk about page poets, or, you know? Mm -hmm. But in some ways, it, it's, it's reductive. It, it, it shrinks us to, to be called a performance poet because you're holding my book. I'm a published poet as well, yeah. you know? And um, what I talk about in the book there is a, an, an overlap between, um, you know, uh, a performance poem on the page and a page poet poet poem perform well, mm -hmm. and, and there's a distinct uh, overlap. And um, yeah, I just I just give some thoughts to how my poems uh, um, sound out loud. And, and when I teach this stuff, I talk about having four dials. Right. Most people get up to speak in public and they just think they got one dial, public speaking, and they set it to four, and they, and they never they never adjust it, you know. Uh, and I think you've got the dial of, of volume from silence and whispering to, to shouting. You've got the dial of pace from stopping silence to speaking really quickly for urgency. You've got the uh, the full range from uh, s uh, misery to comedy. And what do you what do you see on the on the front of a of a theatre Shakespearean theatre? You see the, the mass of comedy and tragedy. Yeah. You know they're they're as equals as well, and and conveying the full range of human experience between those things. So I make no apologies for having some knockabout comedy in my set there as, 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 as carefully crafted as the, as the most powerful yeah. stuff, you know, and try and take people on a journey from, from those extremes, those poles. And then the fourth dial you'd have is, is movement or your physicality from standing stock still to swinging from the ceiling by your ankles. It's, it's all permissible within an art form. So uh, what I talk about when I teach is, is uh, understanding those dials when, you, when you're presented with a, a text for your exams Maybe this is meant to be shouting. Maybe that's think about what that silence means. You know those things, but also, as a writer, giving yourself permission to write from naught to ten on those dials. So yeah, write a whisper, write a shout, write a scream, write running around, write, write comedy, write dark. And the day you, you give yourself permission to go from naught to ten, you know you're dancing on the full mat. You're yeah. painting with all the colours in the box. You know what I mean? And it, it brings your, your writing alive when you have that realisation and give yourself that permission. Talk about work-life balance. So that's your second collection that's forthcoming. So um, I've, I've got a, you know, I've, I've been writing all my life. I've certainly been writing seriously for about 15 years, so I've got a big body of work there. Mm. And when I brought that first book out, I, I, I agonised about how to present myself. So there's, there's, cause there's some you know, serious poems in there. There's a certain number of poems of a type uh, around hard lives and so on that could have perhaps been a, a smaller collection. But I thought, no, if you, if you come and see me, you're going to hear the, the, the silly stuff as well as the serious. And when I arrived at the title, Sex and Love and Rock and Roll, that then self-selected the poems to be in it. So poems about relationships, poems about all sorts of love and the absence of love, poems about um, music, rock and roll, the arts and so on. So when I arrived at the title for this one, Work-Life Balance, that was a hallelujah moment because that took me into different corners of, of you know, what, what I've got uh, already written. So there's a number of poems about... about about work, um, about coal mining, which is in my family's heritage, about digging the canals, uh, about uh, the sort of uh, business jargon rubbish that's, that's spoken, you know. Um, there's a poem about work's Christmas do. There's, there's poems about work. Then there's poems about life in all its forms. So you've got sort of subsections of uh, home life, sex life, family life, public life, uh, community life, that sort of thing. Yeah. And then you've got poems... Um, that try and offer some balance. So uh, poems about the environment, poems about peace, poems about uh, exploring spirituality and those ideas. And uh, it's much delayed. My life's been turned upside down the last couple of years. 
Um, but it's uh, I've managed to re-engage with it in recent weeks, and it should certainly be out this year. I'm touring again in the in the autumn, and I'd like it to be ready by then if I can. Me myself being an aspiring poet, it just your writing process. You said you got a lot of work, so and that's what formed this new collection. Fifteen years work. When you write poetry, do you find you know it comes very quickly and the actual writing process it's done within 20 minutes or is it something you edit and edit and because i know there's some poets that think about things for a long time most most of my poetry rhymes and and that's easy to do badly and, and hard to do well because again when i teach i talk about you know i draw a venn diagram of, of three intersecting circles and uh one of the things you're trying to do is is rhyme uh, and that's the easiest of the three really we can all we can all find rhymes and there's tricks to find them then you've got a flow and a meter to, to stick to and a scansion, those words. And where most people's poetry could be improved is, is in that regard. But then you're trying to not just uh, make sense, you're trying to make people feel something. And that's how we judge art. You know, Mayor Angeli, the writer, famously said, they won't remember a thing you said, they won't remember a thing you did, they'll remember how you made them feel. So what does it say on a movie poster, on a DVD box, on a, on a Netflix blurb, hilarious, yeah. romantic, yeah. thrilling. We, we value art by how it makes us feel. Yeah. So so when people say they don't like a poem, I don't like poetry, they, they're saying it doesn't make me feel anything that I yeah. value. So uh, I spend a lot of time trying to make people feel something whilst pulling off those three tricks at once. So I can spend a long, a really long time on, on a, you know, 14, 16 line poem, crafting it to, to work. Uh, and then, you know, there'll be one syllable too many, one, one, one niggle, one punchline that isn't quite there. And you spend a lot of time just trying to sand down one little, yeah. one little niggle. How, how, how do you know when a poem has reached its end? Well, there's a quote, um, a po- they say a poem is never finished, only abandoned. So sometimes you have to leave them with a niggle still in there with a little drop stitch. Yeah. So you can study Shakespeare's sonnets and his, his own rule of 14 lines and, and 10 syllables of pentameter, you'll find Shakespeare lines with 10, 11, 12 mm-hmm. syllables in them. And he will have really sweated, some of it is about how we used to pronounce words in the past, but he will have really sweated that to try and sand that problem down, yeah. but will have in the end settled on, well, that's the feeling I'm after, I'm gonna have to live with that little glitch, that little drop stitch. Um, so sometimes you, you have to leave them with, with, with a glitch in and, and maybe only bugs the writer. But it's how long is a piece of string? You, um, the, the shorter can be the harder, the harder to write. Churchill used to say, I'll spend uh, 10 minutes writing an hour-long speech and an hour writing a 10-minute speech because y- you're trying to be more concise, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, right, I don't want to keep you too long as I know we're getting dreadfully close to... I, uh, I, <laughs> um, I suppose the, the last bit on I've got lots of students that I teach and they, f- they feel like they've got a voice but they, they don't know how to get going so it's a question, a question you'd be asked loads I imagine but what is your advice especially for younger people that are you know just finding their way in poetry well these days it's never been easier to, to find new poetry to, to uh, take on board so uh, get, you know, get yourself on, on YouTube find a poet or two that you like follow links from links uh, Google Youth Poetry UK Poetry you know fi- find some poets you like in, in the back of my book I listed uh, in 150 uh, excellent poets. That I was going to say, I absolutely yeah. loved that you did yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's a two thir- 2013 list. So that allows people to go off down a, down a YouTube uh, yeah. rabbit hole for three and a half <laughs> months, you know. So that's why I did that. Um, 
there's uh, an excellent organisation called uh, Apples and Snakes, based here in London, which is the, one of the leading UK organisations for um, for performance poetry, slam poetry. They do lots of youth work. There's an organisation called Slam Ambassadors, so you got Poetry Slam, so you got Slam Ambassadors uh, run by the Poetry Joel. Society. Joel Taylor. Uh, I'm not sure Joel's still involved, but Joel's amazing. That would be a really good starting point. Uh, Joel Taylor. Uh, so Slam Ambassadors run by the Poetry Society. You've got an office and a cafe in Covent Garden. Yeah. And then you've got um, channels dedicated to, to, to poetry. So you've got Button Poetry. You've got a thing in America called uh, Brave New Voices, which is a world poetry slam that happens in Chicago every year. You've got uh, Deaf Poetry, so DEF, uh, the hip-hop label, Deaf Jam. They have um, s- uh, basically stand-up poetry, poetry cabaret on HBO, the big channel in America. They, they're 10 or 15 uh, series in of just a poet and a microphone, 150 people in the audience. They've had all, all the rap guys on there, all the R&B people, seeing if they can strip the tunes away and still hack it as a poet. But they've got, you know, they've got certain American style, which people may may want to be influenced by. But we've got our own style here in yeah. the UK. But th- there's there's some good starting points. And follow links from links. Uh, and if you live here in London, then you're absolutely spot. This is a world. It's a world class centre f- for poetry of all types. Performance poetry. You've got uh, a night called Bang Said the Gun, that happens in in different venues. You've got uh, a night called uh, Outspoken. Uh, so many nights. There's a website called Write Out Loud, as in write w write. Uh, and on there they've got uh, a gig guide, national gig guide, and um, you'll see how many uh, poetry events are happening around the country every night of the week in in libraries, uh, open mics, and you're in a great place to make a start. Amazing. Finally, you was just before this we were talking about uh, National Poetry Day coming up. Yeah, I um, I've got a poem in the back of my book called uh, Take This Pen, which. Um, is a is a call to arms for young poets really uh, in it I, ho- I, I get a pen out of my pocket and hold it out and pass it on like a baton like a like a holy flame passed right. passed down the, the generations it's not quite finalized yet but perhaps by the time this goes out um, that's going to be um, in a uh, national poetry day anthology uh, but also we're hoping to do a video that uh, promotes national poetry day uh, uh, and poetry uh, and there'll be a video to go with that and as I say it says he says, if you're this kind of kid, that kind of kid, maybe a shy kid or a bookish kid or whatever, then poetry is for you. Poetry is for you is the refrain. And it says, if you're going to do it, then take this pen and go for it. You know? What a lovely message to end on. Thank you very much for talking to us. If you haven't checked Tony out, Sex and Love and Rock and Roll is available at all good bookshops. Very much looking forward to the show. Thank you. Tony's show was absolutely brilliant. It was like seeing a stand-up comic as well as a poet all rolled into one i implore you to go and see it it was very 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 good his book sex and love and rock and roll is available online through all good bookshops it is a must read just to reiterate what we spoke about in that interview it opens up with the adrian mitchell quote most people ignore most poetry because most poetry ignores most people his poetry certainly doesn't i don't believe anyone that reads that will not not find a poem that resonates with them somehow it is superb a must read This episode's poetry recital comes from Basie Gracie. I stumbled across her work online and this poem, Work and Play, fitted the theme of this episode so very well, celebrating what we may think is the mundane or the ordinary, if you like, but turning it into something beautiful and creative and poetic. I definitely, definitely resonated strongly with Gracie's piece, Work and Play. I used to be in that exact same situation before I moved into teaching. This idea that I was 
valued as absolutely worthless by the people I worked for and that perhaps I would never get out of that situation. Would I ever amount to more? I knew I should amount to more, but will I amount to more? How will I ever amount to more? It's a brilliant piece. Have a listen. She told me, you haven't ironed your shirt. I said, you should see the dirt under my nails. Two days ago, I was writhing in the mud with the snails. My pale skin tanned with grime. I said, fine, I'll iron it next time. She says, you're late. I said, two days ago, I didn't even know the date. I was a master of my own fate, a loose cannon, spinning and sinning. I was boozing and my knees were bruising. I said, sorry, time I am always losing. She says, your brain is not here. I laughed and said, it is not even near. I have transcended fear. I have indulged in too much beer and too much cheer. I sat round the fire discussing vague notions and passing vague potions. I said, sorry, I'll try harder to focus. I'll try so hard to assist without taking the piss. I'll do this customer service as if it was my purpose. I'll slave hours away almost every day because I hardly work compared to how hard I play. And you can hear more of Gracie's work over on Facebook if you search Basie Gracie. Links will be up with a podcast. Or you can find her over on Instagram, Basie Gracie. A massive thank you to Tony Walsh and to Gracie for allowing me to play your work and for taking the time out to talk to me. If you've liked what you've heard today, please do make sure you share it with someone that you think perhaps would enjoy it as well. If this has been a first for you, Poetry Wires, please let us know. Get in touch. We are on Instagram, People's Poetry Podcast. You can email us, People's Poetry Podcast at hotmail.com. And we are also over on Twitter, and that is at people underscore poetry. I've been Jimmy Bowman. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.